You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, and find the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, verse 46. As you're turning there, you will notice from uh, the church, if you've been walking through Uh, the different entrances and especially the stage here that we're getting ready for Vacation Bible School. And as we look at Vacation Bible School this year, there is a theme. And the idea of our Vacation Bible School this year is finding the treasure of God's amazing grace. And the idea is that we're going to be looking at uh, the Word of God, paying specific uh, attention there to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And we are looking at the goodness and the, the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. We utilize the, the, the term that we have proof pirates. That's the, uh, the name of the vacation Bible school. And we're going to take those letters and we're going to walk through grace. Uh, and we understand that when we look at, at God's grace, that God's grace, there's a plan to it. From the very beginning... Uh, God knew that there was a need when men and women fell in the Garden of Eden. There was a plan, and that plan was found in Jesus Christ from the very beginning. Uh, there was a plan. So we got the, the P in proof that God's grace, there's a, there's a plan to it. There's a, a God that's a God of order and structure and, and purpose. God's grace is also resurrecting. Now you think about that, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, but God made us alive in Christ. Uh, Corinthians tells us that we are, we're a new creation in Christ. And so when we think about God's grace, it's a resurrecting grace. It's also an outrageous grace. You ever thought about the gift that God gives us through His Son, Jesus Christ? I mean, how exciting is that? That Jesus Christ came and did something for us that we could never do on our own. And so we're going to be looking at an outrageous grace. But also, we think about grace... Uh, it is a, an overcoming grace, uh, that, that with God's grace we have the, the capability of, of living a life where we no longer rebel against God, but we become servants and disciples as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about what grace does. At, at one point before grace, before we become a believer, we are uh, dead in our trespasses and sin, and we're literally in enemies with God. And before we are saved, if we were to die before we were saved, where, do, where does a person go when they die before they're saved? Hell. And we go to hell because we're at rebellion with God over our sin because God is, is, is holy. That's what Jesus died for, that we don't have to. So grace is an, is an overcoming grace because we no longer at rebellion, but we are following the Lord Jesus Christ and we surrender to him as Lord. And then last, that last day, we're going to look at grace. It's a forever grace. 
Now you think about the love of God, uh, that God loved us so much that he sent his son. And once we repent of our sin and we place our faith in Christ, do you think halfway through this process God's going to change his mind and not love us anymore? Do you think God looks at us and, you know, we have a bad day? Anybody have a bad day this week? Don't stand up and tell everybody out loud. It's between you and the Lord. And all of a sudden the Lord is just going to say, well, I don't love you anymore. No, with God's grace, it is a forever love. And that's what grace is all about. So I am excited because this normally doesn't happen. And, and uh, I'm excited this year. Um, usually the pastor is just told to stay out of the way, encourage the kids, but get out, stay out of trouble. Uh, but this year, Pastor Matt and myself are actually going to be teaching the Bible studies. And so I thought, what an awesome privilege for the pastor to get to take the, the younger kids. I never get to be with the, the kindergarten and the second graders. And so I am so excited this week to go to the kindergarten through second grade and talk about these five things about the goodness uh, of God's uh, grace. I share all of that because it fits perfectly into where we are in Scripture in John's Gospel. John chapter 4, verse 46. John chapter 4, verse 46, where as we are walking through John's Gospel, there are seven signs that Jesus does that are miracles. There are things that he does supernaturally. The first sign was that in the, in the city of Canaan, where he just now returned to, we'll see, he turned the water into wine. Well, that's a miracle. I mean, you just don't, you know, that's a supernatural thing. When Jesus turned water into wine, that was a, a supernatural sign. Then what that sign showed them was there's an old law, but there's a new coming. And I am going to be that new wine. I am going to take that which is old and bland like the water and create a new wine. And the, the new has come under the new covenant. Here in John chapter 4 and John chapter 5, we have sign number 2 and sign number 3. But here's the key. The signs are there to point them to who Christ really is. In the Old Testament, they were living under the law, and they were waiting on the Messiah to come, but they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah because to them, the Messiah was going to be more of a political military leader that would deliver the nation of Israel under the bondage and rule of Rome. So they knew a Messiah was coming, but to them, it was to deliver them as the nation of Israel uh, out from under Rome and that they could be back to being the, the nation of Israel and dwelling in Jerusalem and being the people of God. But what they missed was their real need was not bondage under Rome. Their real need was bondage under sin. And so all Christ is doing with these signs and through the gospel is he's telling the world, I'm the answer. I am the one that the Old Testament prophets are pointing to. I am the suffering servant that Isaiah was referenced to. I am the new water and spirit that Ezekiel is pointing to. It is me, the new covenant, is found in Jesus Christ. Well, what do we do with that? We take the signs and we look at John's gospel in John 4 and 5 and we see what happened to the nobleman and we see what happened to the paralytic and we realize that Jesus is still the answer for all the needs today. Amen? 
You know, we're going to talk to our children all week about what grace is and what faith is and what, how God sends grace into us through Christ and we respond to that goodness and grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what a radical life change that is. But I think sometimes as an adult, we forget, yes, that is the message, but that's also the message that we live out as adults. The answer is found in Jesus Christ and who Christ is. So what I want to do... I'm going to read John 4, 46 through John 5, 17 and walk through it somewhat. But I want to share with you seven things I believe that we can understand in this text where I like to say it this way, where grace meets faith. Where Jesus Christ is grace, God's grace meets faith. Christ came to change lives and we see how he did that. John chapter 4, verse 46 So he came again to Cana in Galilee. Now here's an interesting side note that you may have picked up on, you may not have picked up on. John's gospel gives us the early part of Jesus' ministry that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, the synoptic gospels because they follow the same kind of flow of things. John was written much later, and he's teaching us different things that they don't. John gives us a picture of the earlier ministry of Jesus where the synoptic gospels pick up in the Galilean ministry. So some of the things that John referenced to are not included in the the other Gospels, but John is showing us these things so that we might truly know who Christ is. So he's back in Cana in Galilee where he made the water and the wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him, And they asked him to come down to heal his son, for is at the point of death. And so we have a man, we have a, that son is is near death. He hears that Jesus is back in Cana, so he goes to Jesus. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, if you would just come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed, notice what happened, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Here's an interesting note. If you really pay attention you pick up on this. Jesus spoke to the man, and the man said, My son is dying, and if you would just heal him, heal him. And Jesus said, I will heal him. Okay, so think about this. He had traveled from Capernaum to Canaan. So he traveled and met Jesus, and Jesus said, Your son will be healed. Do you know what that man did next? He went to bed. Now think about this for a second. If my son was close to death and I knew that Jesus would heal him and I went to Jesus and Jesus healed him, most of us would have just immediately, it was about 18 or so miles, they said, immediately we would have just, whatever, we'd have struck out back home to make sure that his son was still alive. Wouldn't you have done that? You know what he did? He went to sleep. Now that's faith right there. He didn't even have to worry about it. He knew his son was healed because Jesus had said it. He said, well, how do you know that? Because they said what happened yesterday. So he went and took a good nap. 
And his servants came to him and said, when did this happen? He said, well, this is when it happened. So he asked them the hour when it began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And verse 53, he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The first being in John 2, the water and the wine. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. One of the interesting things that John points out, he spends a lot of time in Jerusalem and the festivals and the feasts, and all the festivals and the feasts that the Old Testament Jews did, or the Jews did to this point, but were based on Old Testament things, and they were like life lessons about what God had done through the nation of Israel. There might be a, a harvest festival, a festival of weeks, a festival of lights, and there was, you notice that Jesus does a lot of these festivals. Here's what he's doing. You're doing this because you're doing this to, to get to God. I am God. And so it's amazing that Christ shows up at the festivals and at the temple to point people to the true festival and the true temple. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has seven roof colonnades. In this lay a multitude of invalids. So there's a, a pool in the northern part of Jerusalem, and it was known to be a, a healing water. And, and tradition had that an angel would come down and stir the water, and that the angel would stir the water. And if you could get in there first, because the angel had stirred the water, you could get well. Well, how discouraging would it be if you can't move? And so you're sitting by the, the, the water, and the angel supposedly comes down and stirs the water, but you can't get in it. Isn't it amazing that Jesus shows up to a place to where an angel stirs the water so they can be healed and the great healer holds up, shows up and does heal them. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man asked him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the water. When the water is stirred up and where I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. Verse 9, At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, can you imagine this setting? Jesus has healed the man. He had gotten into the water. He had taken up his bed and he had walked. He, and he had just healed him. And Jesus moves on. The officials come to him and say, now, wait a minute. You can't take your bed and move it and walk on the Sabbath. Can you imagine him trying to say, yes, but that man said... What man? That man said that I can take up my mat and walk. But he answered them, that man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Verse 12, they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why Jesus was persecuting, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working unto now, and I am working. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these two signs that you have preserved and given to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at these, as we understand your goodness, your grace, that we can truly see where grace and faith meet. And we're grateful they meet at you, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would remove the, the cares and the worries of the day and let us truly understand what grace and faith are all about. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Seven things. You got nervous when I said seven things, right? Seven things as we look at this text this morning. Just kind of a, a big picture of what is going on here. Jesus is performing these signs to point to people, this is who I am. Number one, what do we see when we begin to look at grace and we look at faith? We see what Christ has done and we see the response. First, we see that there is a universal need for grace. And what are you talking about, Pastor? Think of all the people that Jesus has encountered up to this point. Nicodemus. The religious man that came to Jesus at night and says, how can I know that I can enter the kingdom of God? What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? The religious person, you must be born again. You must be born by the spirit and the water. There's something that must happen that is supernatural, that is not of yourself, that is given by God. That's grace. A religious person needs grace. Secondly, the Samaritan woman. The woman that had been married multiple times, that had been in multiple relationships, that was an outcast and a sinner, and she was at the well, and she was somewhere that most people would not go. But aren't you glad Jesus goes to those places that we don't want to go because he's going and he's offering grace. And he's sitting at the well, and the woman comes up, and he said, Do you want me to give you some water? And Jesus says, No, I don't want your water. You need living water. See, a religious person needs grace. A sinner needs grace. And grace is for everyone. We see here uh, uh, the nobleman. We see a, a ruler, a man of authority, a man of, of purpose, a man of being. He had servants. He was a, a nobleman. But yet there was a void there. And there was a need there. And he knew that Jesus Christ could fulfill it. And so... People of notoriety, people of wealth, people of stuff, people of things, people of success need grace. And that grace is found in Jesus Christ. And then we have an invalid. Someone that's just separated from the goodness of God physically, you could say, and been that way for many, many years and just totally helpless and dependent on everyone. They need grace. They need the grace that only Jesus Christ can provide. Now think about our world today. You know, we're taking up a missions offering. We always take up an offering of Vacation Bible School, so we don't really have, we're not going to discuss what happens when the boys win this year. 
But boys, let me just say this. We start so good as men, but we flounder horribly that fifth day. So I don't know if the women just hold out to the fifth day or whatever, but every year it seems like the girls win. I like to have fun with the offering because it goes to a great thing. You know where our offering is going to this year? Our international missionaries. Uh, as a church, we, uh, we like to adopt things. And so for the standpoint of teaching and emphasis this year as a church, we're going to focus on London. Somebody said, why in the world London? Well, if you've ever been to London, you understand. And several of our folks have been to the United Kingdom and England. There's a great need there. Eight million people live in London. And it's a, the, the capital of the world. And there's 300 languages. Even though English is the main language of London, you know there's 300 languages in London? 300 languages. What do all of those people groups need? Jesus. They need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the ends of the earth to our local neighbor, the greatest need and the only need of mankind is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the forgiveness of sin through faith by grace in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 is a verse we talk a lot about, but do we understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Who needs grace? The world needs grace. Is the world just automatically going to be saved because Jesus died on the cross? No. But the world must hear the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They must hear the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 14. There's a universal need for grace. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. Now has appeared, Titus, Paul is telling Titus, it has appeared through Jesus Christ. He has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope that the appearing of God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. He came for mankind. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people he did that for a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me read that first part again. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What is grace for? First, grace is a universal need of all mankind. The nobleman, the Samaritan woman, the Gentile ruler, the invalid. Who needs grace? We all do. Who can receive grace? Anyone can. Secondly, think about this. Tragedy oftentimes is a pathway of grace. Now, we don't like tragedy. How many people just love tragedy? We all want a great day. But when we're having a great day, I had a, I've used this illustration many times. I had a pastor tell me one time. He said about every eight years, something would happen within the church that would rock the foundation of the church just a little bit. And he asked me, is that, is that true where you're at? I said, you know what, that is true. There's seasons of just great goodness, and everything's just great, and we all get along, and we're, we're one big happy family. And then every now and then, the old crazy cousin shows out. Because we're a family, right? Every family has a crazy cousin, don't point. 
You know, and you, 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 you sit and you think, well, what in the world? Everything's just going good. Last Sunday, people are crawling on the altar, and we have to get the wet vax out to get the tears up. And then the next Sunday, I preach, and I feel like I've prayed the same way and studied the same way, and I had to wake everybody up when it was over. And this wise pastor told me this. If everything went exactly the way you wanted it to go, you would never depend on God and his goodness. That's a wise word. That nobleman had no need for Jesus Christ when his son was doing well. That man would have had no need for somebody to, for grace if he could walk and do what he needed to do. How often it would have been said that we're flat on our back before we look up. Here's another great truth. You don't know you need to be saved until you find out you're dead. Amen? That's tragedy. And that's what the gospel does. And so instead of wanting everything to be great, we pray for everything to be an opportunity for grace. I tell you, a great way to share the gospel is to just find people in your midst that are going through a tough time. Give you an example. I have a co-worker. Everything's going great in their life, and I'm inviting them to church. Hey, we'd love for you to come to our Sunday school class and come to church. Well, man, Sunday's just my day of rest, and I just don't really get into church. Yeah, okay. What happens when that same co-worker has a tragedy in their life? And you go up to that person and say, you know what, I heard there's something going on in your life. Can I pray for you right now? Is there any way that we in my Sunday school class can minister to you? Can we pray for you? Is there something that we can do for you? You know what that person is going to say? Yes. So tragedy is a great opportunity for grace. Near death and invalid, when things are without our control, how about this? Tragedy is when things are within our control. Sometimes tragedy is just things that happen totally outside of our control. I had lunch this past week in Georgia with a pastor friend of mine. I, what I always do, is, it sounds kind of weird, but it's not. Whenever I travel, I try to find a pastor to hang out with. When I was at seminary, I would write little notes to pastors that would preach. And if they were anywhere close to where I lived, like in Georgia, anytime a pastor from Georgia came through seminary or, or college, I'd, I'd send a little note in their hand and say, when I come home Thanksgiving, can we do lunch? I said, what? That's kind, of, that's kind of weird. Well, it is kind of weird. They feel like I'm stalking. But you know what I love to do with those pastors? Talk to them about ministry. Some pastors say yes. Some pastors say no. A pastor took me up on it this week, and we had, we had lunch, and he made a comment. He said, you know, the greatest thing about ministry is to me, and as I've gotten older in life, how undeserving I was of the call, but God called me anyway. That's grace. He said, I grew up going to church, but I made some unwise choices. Didn't always live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. But in his goodness and his grace, he forgave me and he loved me and he called me into ministry. Sometimes the tragedy in our life we have no control over. Sometimes the tragedy in our life is self-inflicted, but grace is still grace. There might be some of you here today that you've got self-inflicted tragedy. You know what you need to do? Just ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of that and give that to him and just love the grace that God provides for that. That's grace. And things not going well in our life is a great opportunity for grace. Third, look at verse 48. 
Now, it seems kind of a strange thing, but in verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So one is, there's a universal need for grace. Secondly, tragedy can be a pathway of grace. Three, faith is based on more than what we can see. Now, as you read that, you ask, well, Jesus, why would you? So the guy comes up there to then ask you to heal his son, and then you look at him and go, so is this more than what you see? That doesn't seem very nice, does it? Jesus knew his heart, but he also knew the hearts of everyone else. He said that not just for that man. He said that for the captive audience. You ever notice Jesus could always draw a crowd when they were doing miracles? Even the disciples, they were all about Jesus the Messiah when things were going well. But when they started persecuting Jesus and talking about death, the numbers kind of really scattered. You ever notice that? We talk about the triumphant entry. That was a big crowd. They started nailing nails in his hands and feet. Nobody was around. Jesus said, listen, faith is more than just signs and wonders. Faith is not just what you can see. How many of you have prayed for something and God does it and you rejoice? But how many of us have prayed for something and you go, okay, if you don't do this, then I know that you're not God. I've heard people say that. I prayed, if you're God, do this and I'll know you're God. That's not faith. Faith is not what you can just see. Faith is about trust. Key is that Jesus knew this man's heart, but he also knew the hearts of the other. He knows what your faith is in. He knows with whatever you have done. One of the great questions uh, that they get asked pastors, how many people in your church are truly born again? And that's a weird question, but that's things pastors sit around and talk about. Y'all didn't know that, did you? I mean, not all the time, but it does come up. So how many people do you really think are born again in your church? I don't know. Does that bother you that I might say I don't know? What do you think I ought to say? Well, everybody. They joined the church. They're good Baptists. They've walked an aisle. They've prayed to receive Christ. They've followed through a baptism. Is that salvation? I don't know. Is it? It can be. But what does salvation rest upon? Forgiveness of sin. Repentance of sin acknowledging I need to be saved and you're the one that can save me. I need a redeemer and you're it and I trust in that. Please forgive me and we enter a relationship with him. That's faith. Another discussion that's come up in church world, are the churches going to continue to get bigger or will churches continue to get smaller? Because if our goal is larger, I don't know if the gospel is going to be proclaimed the way it needs to be. You know, if we say our goal is big numbers and we don't want to offend anybody and we just want to draw a crowd, then it it may become what we see and what we can experience. Other than just preaching about redemption and sin. You know, that's the thing in our world today. We are so afraid to call sin, sin. You know, I was talking to a, a millennial. Uh, I've had this conversation with several millennials. Uh, one of them is real close to me. We'll leave it with that. 
Well, I am what I am because of my personality. I did an online survey, and I do what I do because this is who I am, and I'm a, I'm a GDRPXZ. For those that understand that, you know what I'm talking about. So you do a personality test, and you answer certain questions a certain way, and if you answer these questions a certain way, then that makes you an introvert or an extrovert, or you can sleep in or not sleep in, or you can do this and you can do that, and we blame it on who we are. And I, of course, me being the compassionate person that knows this person real well I said you can call it whatever you want to I just call it this and see the world is that well it's really not this anymore it's this and we we do this because of this and we do that because of this no it's sin anything that we do that God doesn't want us to do according to God's holy word and God's goodness and God's grace and God's justice it's just sin And I'm telling you, there's going to be a day where it's going to be harder and harder and harder to preach the truth of God's Word. Now, I've often said this. That doesn't mean that we have to become angry people as we do it. We can be bold and passionate and have a love for one another and believe it's the Word and preach the Word. We don't have to just be angry all the time about it. But the issue is not out here, Jesus is saying. It's not about all this stuff that we're doing. I'm doing these things so you can see me. It's about right here. In church growth circles, what do we need to do to get people to come to church? I would say preach the gospel. Love people. Build relationships. Be a nice person. Do everything that we can do to remove stumbling blocks. But there's no magical formula. You just preach the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you encourage people to respond. Jesus said, listen, don't get hung up on these signs and wonders. Don't get hung up on this stuff. Faith is based on not what you see. It's more than what you can see. It's eternal. Number four. There is power in the word of the gospel. Look right there in verse 50 of 4. Chapter 4, verse 50. Then Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed. He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. I shared this kind of when I talk about my salvation experience as a child. I grew up going to church and hearing the gospel. And I said this one day not realizing what I was saying. So I grew up going to church, hearing about the good things of God. I I don't ever remember not believing in God okay? because I grew up going to church. But one day, it was like one day, everything that the preacher said, he was saying to me. I had heard about Jesus, I would heard about God, I would heard about all of these things, but one day it was like Jesus spoke and said, I died for your sin. You are the one that has a sin problem, and I died for your sin. If you will ask me to forgive you your sin, if you will enter into a relationship with me. And so it was like I had heard the word forever as a child, even before forever, because my mom used to take me to church when she was pregnant probably. But it was one day I heard the word of Jesus myself. I heard the gospel personally and knew it was for me. That's where we say religion compared to Christianity. Religion is just religion. 
Christianity is personal. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Pastor John, how do you know that you die today, you're going to heaven? I would never say because I'm a member of a church. I would never say because I've been baptized. I would never say because I'm Southern Baptist. I would never say that. Pastor John, how do you know you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Because I have repented of my sin and I have asked Jesus Christ personally to come into my life and save me and the best of my ability, my heart's desire is to personally live for Jesus Christ today. It's not about you or anything in here that my salvation is based upon. It is me and Jesus. It's personal. There are so many places I'd love to be in the Bible to see. Could you, you imagine just Jesus saying, go, right now you go. Your son is healed. You pick up that mat right now, you're healed. You ever think about how Jesus, how God created? God spoke the word in the world in creation. The word is powerful. Thus saith the Lord, go. And today Jesus may be saying to you, come. And we have the treasure of that word preserved for us in Scripture. 5, 8, 9, chapter 5, 8 through 9. Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. There's power in the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, the, the redemptive purpose, the word, what Christ came to do. So number four, there's power in the word as Christ spoke. Number five, true faith is a trusting faith. True faith is a faith that leads to action where grace, the message of Christ, meets faith. True faith is a trusting faith. True faith is not intellectual knowledge and something that I've done. True faith is something that I am doing. I am coming and giving my life to Jesus Christ today. And from this day forward, I'm living my life for Jesus Christ. I am coming today to be saved. In other words, that my old life, there was something wrong with it. I am coming by faith today to give my life to Christ and live differently by, through, by grace through faith, Ephesians 8 teaches, through faith. My, I'm believing something and I'm taking that something in and it is changing my life and it leads to an action. Faith is always an action. In my studies this week, one of the gentlemen, one of the commentators I was studying pointed this out. Notice this faith. There was a crisis of faith. There was a need there. There was a belief issue there. Can Jesus do what he says he can do? Then there was a, a confidence of faith. Jesus said, yes, I can heal. Yes, I will forgive. Yes, you can, I will forgive you of your sin. And then there was a confirmed faith. When he said, take the mat and go, they went, yes. He did what he said he was going to do. 
when we bow our head and our heart and we ask Christ into our life through repentance and faith, there's that confident faith. Yes, and you know what that's like. You may not have jumped up and hollered or wept and all that, but you know the moment that you got saved, you can go back to that moment and say, yes, there's a confidence there in that faith. But notice what happens everywhere in Scripture. There's a courageous faith. Nobody just, the true saved, the redeemed, did not meet Jesus Christ and not change. Even Paul, when he's writing to the, the, the churches and the epistles, even John later on in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, some say that they are, but we don't know. We, they say, they would tell you true faith is a life-changing faith. I've literally, as a pastor, have said this before, that I, I give an invitation and somebody comes forward and I talk with them and over a period of time I talk with them and uh, we have to have steps in place, I guess you could say. I'll let you know some little pastoral stuff. We have steps in place if somebody wants to be baptized. The reason is we want to be sure they understand what they're doing. I don't want to be a culprit of just baptizing anybody and saying, okay, once saved, always saved, you're baptized, you're good. So we have little steps in place. We want to make sure somebody understands it. There have been times that we baptize somebody and a couple of weeks they come to church and then boom, they're gone. They go to that inactive church membership and by the way there's not going to be a little street in heaven for the inactive you just chew on that a little while so then we sit there and we ask ourselves where are they yeah, I talked to them do you believe yes do you yes where, where, I don't know and so years pass by and so in my mind I say okay that's an evangelism thing now. You say, so you mean to tell me you don't think they're saved? You cannot be dead and become alive and realize that Jesus Christ is your total being in your life and you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus. You cannot do that and live years and your life never changed. You've never met Jesus Christ. Is that... I mean, to me, as a pastor, that's all I can do. So I would much rather say, well, I thought that person got it. They must not have. So all I do is look at it as an opportunity for evangelism, like I would a lost person. So, you know, when I, when I do pastoral follow-ups, I say, Brother John, I want you to go visit somebody. They're, they're a church member. They hadn't been in 30 years. Well, the last thing I'm going to do is walk in there and tell them how good they are. And I'm so glad you're a believer. I'll walk in there and just be sweet and nice and Visit with them and talk about them and everything. And says, hey, well, you know, I'd love, love to share with you about some spiritual things. And, you know, uh, why do I think that way? Because when you meet Jesus Christ, you know who you met. And faith always leads to action. Get up. I'm good. I just, I'm just going to lay here. I like the view. Go, your son is healed. No, I'm going to wait till the next sign and miracle worker comes through. I'm just covering all my bases. Just giving everybody, I want to check all my boxes. I got everything covered. No. Number six. The validity of the gospel will always be attacked. Isn't that crazy? 
Don't you love religion? So the man is lame for 38 years and cannot walk. And Jesus comes up and says, pick up your mat and walk. Here go the Pharisees. Ah, foul, foul, foul. He did it on the Sabbath. Doesn't count. I mean, I just want to say, who, really? The man hadn't been able to walk for 38 years, and he meets Jesus Christ, and he's healed, and now he can walk, and you're worried about what day of the week we did it on. They'd make a good Baptist committee member somewhere in the church, wouldn't they? We don't do that on the Sabbath. I I mean, I understand why I'm not Jesus Christ. One reason I'm not Jesus Christ, because I'd have pitched a fit right there. And I would have said something like this. God didn't say don't heal on the Sabbath. Tradition said don't heal on the Sabbath. Amen? The Pharisees said don't heal on the Sabbath. They've created all these rules. God never said don't heal on the Sabbath. He said honor the Sabbath. But they were so hung up on what man thought that they couldn't see Jesus. And you ask yourself, what are the things that we do that we are so hung up on us that we can't see Jesus? And another thing to consider, taking the gospel into the workplace and asking for total approval is not the mission. Could you imagine what type of message I would have to preach if the goal was that everybody needs to believe it and embrace it exactly the same way before the message is called a success? Okay, so if that's the case, my goal is... Whoever's in attendance, everybody has to believe the exact same way and everybody needs to do the things the same way. Well, I could never preach on sin. I could never preach on right or wrong. I could never say this or that. And so that's not my goal. My goal is to be faithful to the Word. And in our current culture, we have such a desire to be accepted and liked that we've taken the gospel and we've absolutely just done, thrown it away so that the world will accept us. You know, I was in a situation in a previous ministry in a small town and a decision was made and I'll never forget sitting there and a man that I admired very greatly. We were sitting in a, in a, in a thing and there was something going on in the life of a, a so-called church member that was just blatant open sin and we were sitting there as deacons and staff and we were thinking, man, what are we going to do with this? We can't just allow something. We, gotta, we were putting up a plan. Somebody's going to go sit and talk with them and I remember one of the men said, oh, we can't do that. If we say something about that, what are people in town going to think about our church? And I, I was a little bit younger and a little bolder back then maybe. Who cares? I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to answer to God. I'm not going to stand before town. They don't go to church anyway. Isn't that amazing? We're more concerned about what people that don't go to church think about our church. They're not going anyway. We're going to stand before God. Now think about it from another perspective. 
Do you think God will bless that? I had a church member one time, and he was having, I think, some medical issues. I'll just say it with that. Was in a leadership position, had some medical issues going on. Wish he would have told me that. Was trying to deal with it with medication, and he got out there. Woo! And was teaching a class and started teaching just crazy stuff. And so, you know, that's one of those situations, pastor, you need to deal with this. It's kind of like, you know, that's why the pastor makes the big bucks. You get to deal with all this. And I said, brother, let's, let's talk. What's, what's going on, man? Well, I'm not so sure I believe in church anymore and the Bible and your leadership and the deacon's leadership. And they're all ungodly and I'm the only godly person around here. And true story. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I said, brother, you, you can't teach Sunday school and say this. Well, if you're asking me not to teach Sunday school, I'm taking my tithe and I'm leaving. And you know how much I tithe? I said, no, I really don't know how much you tithe. So if you tell me to step down from Sunday school, this is what he said. If you tell me to step down from Sunday school, I'm leaving. Uh, you got to step down from Sunday school. So you're telling me I'm not a member of this church? I'm just telling you, you cannot teach Sunday school saying what you're saying in Sunday school. Well, I'm leaving and taking my tithe. There was a split second that I worried about that tithe because I do like income. I do like to be able to feed my family. There was a split second I thought, oh, he's a big giver, I think. I know he is. He told me. You know what happened? Isn't it amazing the day he left, God opened up the hearts and the pocketbooks of people that should have been giving all along, and our budget increased. Isn't that amazing? And we were about to make a decision as a church based on what we thought about a man. Do you think God will bless any church of America that stands on the Word of God and says, lovingly, graciously, passionately, we're going to stand on the word so that the world can hear truth and respond to truth. Do you think God will bless that? If we're concerned about what politics thinks or the, the law thinks or the judicial system thinks or what we can say and not say, but if we will stand on the truth of the God's word, there will be churches all over America that the community may not embrace, but God will bless. Because God's word will always be attacked. In the very beginning, you would think at the very beginning, it'd be, you know, from the very beginning, you would think they could stand a little, little firm. I mean, we're talking about it took the first three chapters of creation and we blew it. Three chapters is all it took for us to blow it. Genesis 1, everything's great. He created the entire universe in a chapter. There we go. We're great. He made man. Man didn't like being alone. He made woman. Made marriage. Everything's great. Satan came around and said, did God really say that? Notice what Satan did. He didn't say, there is no God. He didn't say, blah, blah, blah. He just simply looked at Eve and Adam and said, but is that what God really meant? And you know what Eve said? You're right. He didn't mean that. Even though he told me not to, I bet he didn't mean it that way. And it's not that he said I shouldn't do it, but I think I need to do it because it does look good, so I'm going to take it, and Satan may be right. God just doesn't want me to know what he wants to know. So, hey, Adam, look what I got, a mango, hey! 
Did God really mean that? I mean, take something as, as prominent today. Did God really say what marriage is? I think he did. Did God really say what the gospel is? I think he did. If sin was sin then, then sin is sin now. And so the point is, don't be fearful, be excited. Okay, approval is not our message. Approval is not what we're after. We're going to proclaim the message in a loving way, in a truthful way, and know that the gospel is always going to be under attack. But we need to know that God will always bless the proclamation of the gospel. And then we'll close with this. Number seven. For those that write these things out, what I try to do some point in the following week, I always put my sermon notes. If, those, if you weren't aware of that, on my pastorjohnbeck.com website, all that is is my sermon notes. It's not my manuscript. It's not everything. It's just pastor. Somebody asked me, are you crazy just to throw out your sermon notes? Listen, we're family here. That's my sermon notes. I know sometimes when I get home, my wife says, you said seven, but you said four, and then you said three, and you said two. I know she's got problems, so I assume others may as well, that you can't follow me. So every week you can see how right I was and Sharon was wrong with her numbering. Number seven, God's grace used by true faith has redemptive power. Grace is God's part. That's the way I like to always try to think of things. Grace is what God is doing. Faith is what I have done based on what God is doing. Okay? Grace is what God has done. He sent his son. He has a plan. Grace. Unmerited favor. God's riches at Christ's expense. It is something God did, not because of me. Grace is what God does because of God. Faith is what I do with grace. God's grace and my faith have redemptive power, meaning I am born again and I have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I believe in the power of the gospel. There are people that I know that do not know Christ. There are Christians I know that need encouragement. By faith, I am going to go live out the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I know God will use his grace through my faith. That man went home and said his household got saved. The Philippian jailer and when, when Paul and Silas went to Philippian jail, the whole household got saved. Does that mean that that man just walked in and the whole household got saved because he got saved? No. But God used his faith and his grace and people began to get saved. I believe with all of my heart, you take that and multiply it by this church, God will use our true faith and his grace and we can see a redemptive movement. And Jesus came for the purpose of redemption. Grace is a story about redemption. Making things right. The man got right. The boy got right and the household got right. He himself believed in all his household. 
the two signs we looked at this morning is, is Jesus saying, this is who I am. And this is what I came to do. It's not about the old law and the old covenant. It's about redemption through the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what we have at our disposal now. We have grace. A grace that is a planned, purposeful grace. A grace, as we'll look at this week at VBS, it is a resurrecting grace. It is an outrageous grace. It is an overcoming grace. It is a forever grace. That is what our children need to know. That is what adults we need to know. That is what this world needs to know from the ends of the earth that God is a God of grace. Where grace and faith meet is Jesus Christ. Go. Your son is healed. Take up that mat. Sin no more. And go live. And I believe that Jesus is saying to us all this morning, come, look, and live. See Jesus for who he is. Let's stand as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We're grateful that our faith can find a resting place. And that place is in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We're grateful that grace and faith meet at the cross. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that needs to publicly profess their faith in Christ, if there's anyone here today that by grace through faith has opened up their heart, and receive forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they would realize that. Lord, let us see that our faith has found that resting place. And this we pray in Jesus' name.